Hello everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast, and I, a university fiction teacher, am going to spend a lot of time taking a good look at the underrated writings of Stephen King. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 67, The Tommy Knockers. Oh, I'm excited. Thank you guys so much for joining me. We are back to what we do best here on the show, which is exploring novels, specifically underrated and perhaps poorly rated Stephen King novels. And Oh man, friends, uh, am I so excited to be with you today talking about this book. <sighs> I, I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, so I'm going to hold off beginning for just a second by thanking everybody for tuning in to the last eight weeks as we explored Lisey's story, the limited series on Apple TV. Thank you guys if you hung out with me week by week exploring those episodes, taking a deeper dive into that novel. I am such a drooling, slobbering, adoring fan for Lisey's story. I just, I don't know how that happened. It just kind of did. It just snowballed. And now I'm just fangirling all over the place. So uh, jump back to those episodes. If you're taking a look at the Apple TV series, you can take a look at my novel analysis way, way, way at the start of the podcast. Uh, I think I leave a lot to be desired as I was just swimming into the pond of early podcast days, just paddling out there with my little ducky feet. Uh, But now we are back to one of my favorite things, which is taking an underrated King title and extrapolating and uh, taking a look at what the heck's going on, maybe why it's poorly reviewed, why maybe it needs a little bit more research leadership, more love, but this one, friends. So if you have been listening to the podcast for a little bit, I explored wanting to read Tommy Knockers in my Misery episode, as well as Drawing of the Three, because the titles, Misery, Drawing of the Three, and the Tommy Knockers are kind of, at least in my research, a, a sort of trifecta of the final swan song novels King put out before sobriety, or really, really having a huge intervention moment with family and friends, where he made a huge turning point decision that he had a problem with alcohol, most definitely. He had been a long time drinker, probably abusing it since college days. And per King, a solid decade of cocaine use. Granted, the million dollar question is, oh my God, how is it that somebody that uh, impaired is able to create such prolific novels? That is, you know, the question of all questions. Truly, he's made of different stuff. But uh, earlier in this year, we have taken a look at Drawing of the Three, which has a lot of addiction in that novel. One of the characters, Eddie Dean, is a recovering heroin addict. We have a lot of body intensity and extremity, lots of uh, bombastic over over-the-top action and drug use withdrawal symptoms that are just epic. And then, of course, Misery, 
is a novel in which Annie Wilkes, our main villain, is a 100% solid metaphor for cocaine and the way King viewed cocaine in his life, perhaps an unrelenting, unkillable presence, force, affliction, all that good stuff. And now we have the Tommyknockers. And according to the bibliography, the Tommyknockers was released in 1987. So I'm assuming it was, um, Shipping, being shipped away at in uh, either 1986 or before. And when this one was released after that, we have a very different King sort of writing. So this one is the last one before sobriety. And the novels mentioned previously of Misery and Drawing of the Three, I really consider them to be locked in this little trifecta of... Yeah, this is a period in, in King's work, in his life, in his writing career where we can, I think, take a look at these these final years of like, wow, this guy is kind of skirting along the edge. And I see that in this book more so than Misery and Drawing of the Three. That's for darn sure, my guys. But as I was watching the Lisey Story limited series on Apple TV, which please, 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 please watch it and read the novel and check back uh, to uh, hear my thoughts and write me on the show. Uh, <laughs> please write into the show, share some thoughts with me about Lisey Story because it's my favorite thing to talk about. But um, as I was making my way uh, watching Lisey's story and uh, loving, loving, loving every second, except episode four, oh my god, <laughs> episode four can die a fiery death, but I was reading for the very first time The Tommyknockers. Never read it before. The only thing I knew about it is it did involve aliens. So major spoiler alert to anybody. This, of course, uh, has been in print for a while. This was a 1987 publication, so hopefully you've read it. If it's been a while, maybe you want to reread it. Uh, the actor Edward Herman does a tremendous job with the audiobook if you want to read along with the text, which I highly recommend. That's what I tell all my students when we have some uh, short stories or required reading, and it's really hard to get people to read these days. We live in a chaotic, very distracting world with lots of streaming services. So uh, if you really want to sit down and dig into any Stephen King text or you're finding it a little hard to concentrate, I recommend getting the audiobook and the physical book and listen to the language and read the language at the same time. It's really going to be an immersive experience for you. You're going to get a lot out of it. And I certainly did with this read of the Tommyknockers. And it was, I was able to maintain neutrality for the most part because oh friends uh i'm just so excited to talk about this book with you because this was a very unique underrated work and this is probably one of the more poorly rated king titles out there this is rather low on uh the rating scale and i can see why I can see why, my guys, and oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I there is so much to talk about with this book, and uh, when I was preparing my notes, trying to figure out how to organize all of them, because at the end of my reading, it looked like a, a crazy person pieced this together, uh, just tangents and rabbit holes and all kinds of strange observations that 
didn't connect like I wanted them to. And it made me realize, you know what, Kim, see, this is a messy book and it's, it's not really working. And so I have two words, two words that were in my head pretty much the entire time I was reading the Tommyknockers. And those two words are sadly negative, dear folks, but those words are sloppy, S-L-O-P-P-Y, <laughs> sloppy, and bloated. Bloated, yes. Um, both bad, both negative connotations to both of them. And with good reason. Uh, we are going to talk about in great detail in the next section uh, how I came to those two words. But my thoughts on Tommyknockers, in addition to those two words going through my mind the entire time, this has been the only King title out of the 30 or so I've read uh, since 2013, since I was 26 years old. Uh, jump back to my episode on Full Dark No Stars. That is my very first King title. If you're very new to the podcast and would like to learn about the humble origins of Kim C, I was fresh from grad school and that was my first King experience, first life-changing King read. But uh, that's where it all started for me. And over the years, I've been chipping away with reading and rereading King's works, specifically the underrated ones. And this is the only title, good friends, that I was sick of reading it. You heard me right. Uh, right around page 400 with the Tommyknockers, I was getting fatigued. I was getting fatigued. I did not care anymore. And I was like, oh my god, that's the kiss of death. That's the kiss of death. Like, if you jump back to my Misery episode, I wanted to quit halfway through Misery because I was scared shitless. Like, my guys, I was scared to my soul. <laughs> like, I couldn't go on. It, it, my spirit would not allow me to progress. It took every fiber of my being to be encouraged by the group nature of my misery read to finish. But this one, oh my goodness, listeners, this one was like, will he shut up? Like, and I've never said that about King. I adore this man. I find him practically holy. I think he is the most prolific fiction writer to ever walk planet Earth. And yet, <laughs> I was over it, my guys. I was really over this story. And wow, yeah, I was very surprised I felt that way. So, overall, my read of the Tommyknockers, I did not love it. Definitely did not love it. There was a lot I liked. There was a lot I appreciated. And as we're going to talk about in the next section, this story started very strong for me. Ooh, this was such a sexy start. Holy crap, guys. So good. I was like, yes. King has no idea how well this is translating, like, it is aging well, I am into this. And then, uh, we start to spiral and we start to bloat. And I can't help but hypothesize that 
it was such a massive success in 1986, right? Hopefully we've all read it. If you haven't, please do yourself a favor. Take the next month, read it, get yourself a physical copy, and uh, read one of the greatest novels of all time. Uh, be changed by it. Let's talk about it. But uh, it was a 1,200-pager, if I'm correct, maybe a 1,300-pager. And I'm wondering if perhaps, you know, by this point in King's career, the late 80s, he's just white hot, right? He's as popular as popular could be. Just there is no one cooler. That's when my father started reading King. He was just the guy. Uh, you know, there was Carrie and Cujo and The Shining and It and The Stand. Like, this guy was 10 out of 10 on the popularity chart. He was everywhere, right? So then we 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 get this book and I can't <laughs> first of all it needed to be sliced and diced whoever was the editor needed to take a huge machete to this book huge machete dear listeners um, and they didn't and I think they didn't because it was so glorious and it was so long and working so well I'm assuming I don't know for sure. Who knows? I'm wondering, being King's editor must have been a really tall order because, you know, he's pretty much godlike at that point in the late 80s, and you don't really want to be the person that's going to take a, a huge machete to the master's work to start, you know, mucking up the place. However, that's what we needed, and I think at the time, they probably thought King was very much like Charles Dickens, where, you know, the more he wrote, the more money was made for every page. I get that effect with this book, guys, because there is so much. There are so many areas of this novel that need to be swiftly thrown in the trash. Um, and this is because the tightness of the story, it, it, it unravels very quickly. Um, it just does. <laughs> and so I think King's storytelling was sacrificed for him enjoying his character writing, which of course, if you've read King over the years, or for many of us have been, uh, many of you listeners out there, you've been reading King for decades, and it is incredible. 30, 40 years reading King is just mind-blowing. And we all know, hopefully, that he is a incredible. It's, there are no words. There are not strong enough adjectives to describe the power of his character writing, right guys? Like, he has brought us characters who we will never forget as long as we live. Like, they will stay with us until we're dead. That's how good of a character writer King is. So, we have that good writing. We have that strong King writing in this story. However, I think King's, uh, well, let's just say his, his own scheme, I think, catches up and bites him in the butt. And we're going to talk specifically more on what that means in the next section. But for this episode, because this is such a 
strange book. It is one that has been mentioned on other Stephen King podcasts as people calling it a trash book, a throwaway book. It's a book that they don't even want to talk about. Others uh, praise it for being awesomely bad. So you have those folks who kind of read it just to laugh at it and to kind of mock it a little bit. There is that. I could see how that would be a huge selling point. I don't know if I, I, I think I could if maybe I explored certain scenes <laughs> more times, but I, I wanted to take a look at this book because it is all over the place in terms of the public opinion. Uh, it's hated quite a bit. Totally valid. Totally valid. Um, the fact that I wanted to stop reading it was shocking to me. Shocking, listeners. Oh my goodness. I was heartbroken, actually. I was, I've never felt that in a King work before. I've been too scared to read. I've been really too frightened to continue. Yes, yes, yes. But never have I been bored or stopped caring to such an extent. So that really hurt my soul a little bit, but it also caused me to dig in a little deeper and say, okay, okay, story. Okay, Tommyknockers, what in the hell is wrong with you? Like, what is going on? And, uh, it makes sense that it's the last novel before sobriety because we do have a lot of King in his just, just skirting along the edge of it's contrived, it's, it's, what's the word for it? It's too much. He, he's definitely channeling Bachman a little bit with that sort of, um, uncouth, brash, crass, um, asshole who just is word vomiting all over the place on political issues. We know that King is a political writer. Uh, he is, if you weren't sure of that. Uh, but this is a little over the top. And, and, and I don't mind his politics in the stories at all. But this is like, even for somebody who kind of supports ports that I'm still like King, I'm King let's tone it down my guy let's let's shh, shh. he's it, and and that's how this book reads it reads like he's drunk at the party talking very loudly and he won't shut up and he won't stop it's like that friend right we've all had the night out with that friend who goes a little too far and starts to make a spectacle um, that happens a little bit in this book. So uh, the way I'm structuring this episode is because we are all over the place with how I feel about it in terms of there's a lot to celebrate. There's more to not celebrate than there is to celebrate. There's more to hate. There's more to dislike, um, more to be frustrated with. So when I finished the novel, I was like, there's no way I could do a traditional literary analysis. I just can't. So this episode is going to basically get down to basics, to brass tacks, as they say, and we're just going to look at what's good and what's bad. Because this is such a poorly rated Steve novel, this is a... it's it's definitely it's it's not good (laughs) and I struggle to say that this is not a strong work even for being underrated this is a messy bloated sloppy book that is in great 
extraordinary extreme need of an editor a stronger editor one that was definitely not going to placate mr king as i feel might have happened we de definitely needed some stronger editing back then and King himself has also said in various interviews regarding the Tommyknockers, he feels out of the 550 pages in the American hardcover, he says, I think we have a good three to 400 pager in here. And I think he's right. I think this story could have been pretty cool. Uh, we've got some cool stuff in here, we've got some noir, we've got some cool sci-fi, we have King exploring small town America, which he does so beautifully. There are things to celebrate, but unfortunately the execution. I have been nerding out to the Summer Olympics here, and uh, I'm such a fan of gymnastics, and that's Dick Landing, the, the, the execution, dear listeners, is just not there. So I'm going to hold off on giving my final thoughts. I've given a sort of rough, bumpy account that this is a book I did not like. However, hopefully in this episode, we will be able to spotlight the things that are really working beautifully and perhaps... I would like this book read by you guys. I think I would like to explore it more and definitely analyze and discuss it more because this is, um, it's, if, if we look at it like we were looking at a musician or an artist who is struggling with addiction or we were looking at that po um, point in their career, I think, uh, I think we might have a little bit more leniency, tolerance, acceptance, curiosity um yeah and so i'm wondering if if we were to pick up tommy knockers now knowing all that we know about king's personal journey if it would impact it a little bit but last thoughts before we head into our first section a uh, quick story that i feel will be a perfect <laughs> way to cap off this introduction uh my grandmother was an artist specifically with ceramics and pottery and uh when we were kids in her home she had this back room where she stored all of the art supplies all of the clay and and not only you know pottery stuff or ceramics but just any art supply ever beads canvases paint fabric uh and it was slightly in a hoarder heap uh mountain of of craft supplies i think she was a little bit of a compulsive buyer she was a shopper my grandma and the grandkids and i would sneak in there and rummage and there was just a bunch of crap from the 70s just in a heap we would always sneak in there and sift around and uh, we would always get in trouble because her hearing was uh, exceptional <laughs> and we had to exit the junk room because she didn't want us getting hurt that's how big of a pile this place was but as I was reading the Tommyknockers, I couldn't help but have visual, vivid memories of my grandma's junk room because that's what this novel experience was like for me, dear friends. It was like sifting through a junk room or if you ever had a friend move out and you had to empty their storage unit and there's just so much crap stacked so high, but then you start exploring and pulling out a box here and there and opening it up and you're like hey this is cool I forgot about this um 
this is a junky, clunky, cluttered mess of a book, dear friends, but there is some treasure. You gotta sift through it, but there's some gold, there's some sparkly beads, some uh, very luxurious cloth swatches, or perhaps uh, a beautiful painting you didn't know was in there, uh, lovely vintage clothes, who knows what we're gonna find. But uh, if you are considering the Tommyknockers, have that in mind as you're making your way through the book. It's a junkyard. Uh, if you're a dumpster diver, which I almost was uh, behind a makeup store, I will not name. <laughs> I was really curious. That was a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing amongst uh, beauty bloggers about dumpster diving for cosmetics. I considered it back in the day. But it's in pursuit of treasure, but we're gonna have to slog through the muck and the mire. And uh, I think if you have that in mind, if that is something that doesn't sound entirely off-putting to you, let's read the Tommyknockers. Let's do it, guys. Let's uh, let's give it a chance and see what kind of treasure we can find, because there is some. I found it, and we're gonna talk about it. So coming up, uh, please have uh, your yourself prepared for spoilers. I have to talk about this book, guys. There's just too much to leave unexplored. So we are going to talk about the ending. We are going to talk about all the things, main themes. I am going to ruin it for you. So if you're okay with that, stick along. If you are just a little curious or you maybe want to reread or re-listen to a couple passages, uh, definitely hold off before heading into the next sections. But this episode, we're going to explore what is working, what is definitely not working. And uh, if we have some time, and I don't make this a part two because we might have to split it. We'll see how long we go. Um, but what I would like to do in either this episode or the next episode is look at the film. There was an adaptation, I believe, starring Mark Helgenberger. We're going to take a look at that. And we're going to take a look at the strongest characters within this story because there are some memorable ones. Even though they are on the screen for brief time I was wow I was impressed I was impressed by them I was impressed by what they stood for uh, we've got a real badass in here guys named Anne uh, Robertson Robinson um, she's she's crazy she's cool and I really want to talk about some of these standout characters and hopefully they'll entice you to give the book a second chance uh, merely for uh, maybe academic observance I don't know or if you would like the experience of sifting through <laughs> a very messy room so I am thrilled once more to be with all of you at this point in time we're gonna get abducted. So we're headed to a planet called Altair 4 where there isn't a lot of air and it's pretty dark. So let's get ready guys. I'll see you in the next section.
Late last night and the night before, Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers, knocking at the door. Welcome everyone to the first section exploring the positives within 1987's The Tommyknockers. But before we begin exploring what's working in this novel, I did want to jump back to the introduction as I should have included a brief summary of what exactly this book is about. So if you know a little something about a little something, this is about aliens. So going to be upfront with that right away. I'm also going to be upfront with the fact that this is going to contain spoilers everywhere. Usually in my novel analyses I try to dance around them, but if I have a hot button text like this one where there's just a lot of opinions, there's a lot of chatter and chat in regards to its rating, I really want to explore it to the best of my ability. So we are going to be talking about everything within this book. Character arcs, the ending, everything. So just a heads up, if you'd like to remain spoiler free, let's uh, take some time to read the novel and then you can jump back and I won't ruin anything for you. But we're going to kick it off with a quick summary, which is local author and resident of Haven, Maine, Bobby Anderson and her beagle Peter are walking in the woods when they stumble upon a chunk of silver metal jutting out of the ground. And under its influence, Bobby Anderson starts to dig it up and change in frightening and beguiling ways. The reader soon learns that this chunk of metal is connected to an alien spacecraft that has been buried in the big engine woods of Haven, Maine for generations and has malevolently influenced its residents for decades maybe even hundreds of years. So the residents of Haven, Maine begin to exhibit strange symptoms, more on those in just a little bit, and change physically, uh, more akin to perhaps those who inhabited the long buried spacecraft. <laughs> so this is a super duper extraterrestrial centered text. This is an alien book all over the place. We are going to definitely draw some comparisons to other novels we've already read on the podcast having to do with the extraterrestrial. More on that in a little bit. But following the rules of fiction workshop, we must always, always, always begin with the positive. No matter what, writers group you're a part of or a fiction workshop, we must always start with the positive. And if they don't, they are breaking the sacred rules of fiction workshop. So you need to find a new class or a new writers group because we must always, always start with the positive. So as I was compiling my notes on the Tommyknockers, I really, really wanted to do what I normally do on these episodes, which is to separate the themes of what's working, and then I have a whole entire section devoted strictly to characters. Like, we don't talk about anything but the characters. However, because this is such a wild, messy yarn ball of a book, um, I can't do that this time, guys. So what we're gonna do is just 
wants to keep it really black and white. Everything in this section is going to be what I liked about this book, characters included. And then in our next section, we're going to talk about all the ways this thing needs drastic editing and fixing and revising. And we're going to talk about the 1993 film starring Jimmy Smits and Mark Helgenberger and how I actually kind of appreciated some of the uh, script choices they, the approach they took I think was really smart so we're going to discuss the film. So that's what we have going on for the rest of this episode but let's begin with what's working. Number one, Bobby Anderson and the beginning. Dearest friends, I cannot tell you how much I loved the start of this novel. I was smitten for what King was doing. And here's here's the reason why I think this book is kind of worthy of picking up right now, especially now, and giving it a go. Um, he has no idea how well this thing is aging. So the novel does take place in the year 1987. There's a lot of political stuff that like highlights that. So this is totally an 80s text. However, the character of Bobby or Roberta Anderson, she's 37 years old. She's been in Haven for a couple years now since grad school. She kind of just post-grad school, uh, got stuck and never left, built a life. She has a 17-year-old, I believe, beagle named uh, Peter. He's sweet, he's old, his eyesight's not so good, and she's kind of a recluse uh, a little bit. I don't think it's on purpose, it just kind of happened, especially because Haven seems to be one of the more rural communities. Um, I think the film depicts this really well, where it's just like a little cottage in the woods. Uh, it's a little off the beaten path. But this sweet lady is a novelist of westerns, and uh, she and her dog just kind of enjoy this solitude-filled life where they walk around in the forest and make dinner and she reads books. And I, I don't know, guys, but it's like in this current pandemic world we live in, I feel like oh my god, that's all of us, you know? Um, aside from the fact that Bobby is single, she's 37 and single, and seemingly content about that. Uh, my next point down a few rungs on uh, my positive list concerns her relationship with Jim Gardner. More on that in a little bit, but like, it is progressive as hell, my guys. Like, this is so ahead of its time. It's amazing. But before I get there, I'm just loving this introduction of Bobby, her dog, this solitude. She's a single woman at 37. <laughs> I was just like, does he have any idea that in the year 2021, one, that is the reality, the chosen reality for so many of us. It's just, it was wild. It cut really close <laughs> uh, to the bone, very, very close to home where I was just like, oh my god, like this woman enjoying her private time. I mean, now uh, Bobby would probably take Peter for a walk, come home and 
binge a show on her whatever chosen streaming service because that is all of our lives now, correct? So but there was something very, very familiar to it and shocking because you're like, wow, this is 1987. I was fresh out of the womb by that point, <laughs> freshly born. And um, yeah, the, the woman in this novel and the kind of rhythm and flow of her life, I you know, if, if Bobby was in 2021, she would be working from home and like just enjoying this cottage lovely life with her it was just it's very cool guys it's very cool so if you're interested in kind of reading this fascinatingly close to contemporary times plot and this lady I give it a definitely open up the first few pages of the Tommyknockers it's very interesting and cool but uh, Bobby uh, absolutely won me over straight away she's just different she marches to the beat of her own drum most definitely she's private quiet she writes westerns which is very interesting because she's nowhere near the southwest so she's kind of lives this romantic dust-filled tumbleweed existence in her mind and her only companion is her dog Peter and she seems to be incredibly content as a single woman. Here's where it gets cool and creepy and really really made me love the beginning of this novel. So the the introduction to the conflict, of course, is this infamous walk with she and Peter, and he stumbles upon that piece of metal. Stuff starts to happen right away. And one of the most frightening things that really creeped me out, and this is female-centered, is because um, right away, Bobby starts to have intense menstrual bleeding, like frighteningly heavy menstrual bleeding. And um, that's a little, like, if you, uh, I, I gotta speak to the ladies on this one. If you are nowhere near your menstrual cycle and that happens out of nowhere, like, that is incredibly alarming. And so right away, uh, with her getting home and kind of noticing, like, her underwear is full of menstrual blood and she's like, what the hell? And uh, it, it's, she's not on schedule, it's, it's very out of the blue and it doesn't stop it doesn't go away and i for one start was like whoa whoa because if that ever like that is creepy body horror um specifically 100% female indoctrinated body horror and i no me gusta ladies and gentlemen and so that really freaked me out a little bit i enjoyed what King was doing there with the mystery of just taking a lovely evening stroll in the woods, there's this weird piece of metal, and then you start to dig it up a little bit, and all of a sudden there's a lot of blood uh, in your underwear, and you're just like, oh my god, whoa. And maybe the one afternoon would be just like a kind of random like huh that's weird but it persists for several days very heavy flow which would freak me the hell out so I really uh, enjoyed my next point of this positive exploration which is the physical symptoms so what's really cool about the creepy bodily horror King does 
are the physical symptoms of encountering this alien craft and the changes specifically. So I mentioned the heavy menstrual flow, but it also affects men as well in terms of gushing nosebleeds. Uh, and the other big one is a loss of teeth. So this one is super creepy and throughout the novel as our Haven residents start to change or start to kind of become, I put that in quotes, which is basically the transformation or indoctrination or uh, more on that later because I'm a little confused on that. But um, under the influence of this alien uh, craft or presence or energy, uh, we have a lot of tooth loss, just random teeth falling out in the middle of the night, like that creeps me out. And so I really enjoyed the physical body horror that was kind of subtle and slow, whether it was uh, rough menstrual bleeding, nosebleeds. Um, I think there was, I, I know that there was a couple other sources of blood, but nosebleeds and tooth loss is a huge thing. Like right away when that's mentioned in the story, you're just like, oh no, it's happening. So that was a huge, cool telltale symptom. Um, the second or the third, actually, the third physical symptom I really enjoyed in this novel was the... Uh, extremely evolved intelligence and invention. So this is, there are a lot of odd parts where characters in this novel make really silly invention kind of things, but I liked that shortly after they lost a few teeth, got the bleeding under control, got their sleep schedule up and running again, they start to invent things. They start to look at batteries and everyday machinery and just create these completely out of this world, wonky, like really sort of Willy Wonka kind of inventions out of scraps, out of metal and just, uh, parts around the house, taking like a toaster and pulling it apart and creating this crazy thing. I thought that was very, very cool. I really liked how exacerbated intelligence, augmented intelligence was very cool um, to where, yeah, they start to make some pretty crazy stuff and they're able to accomplish much more with their uh, everyday thoughts, behaviors, actions. For example, uh, Bobby herself, the character, writes an entire novel in three days, I believe, with the help of an invention that helps her articulate her thoughts better. It's wild. So I really love the intelligence and the invention. Later on in the novel, when things start to really cook up there in Haven, we get a lot of mind reading. So I'm okay with this. I, I like the kind of, it's definitely an augmented step as uh, things, the heat starts to uh, boil over in terms of what's going on in Haven, what this alien influence is doing to everybody. So I really did like when uh, they're able to read each other's minds. However, they can't read your mind if you have a plate in your head, which a couple of our uh, people do, or you have metal fillings in your teeth. So more on that in a little bit. 
Um, but those are my, let's see, one, two, three, four, four favorites in terms of the physical symptoms that are found within this book, specifically like extreme out of nowhere menstrual flow. That got me, my guys. Oh, I did not like that. And I was on board. I was very nervous for Bobby. I was very nervous for any female who all of a sudden just starts bleeding out of nowhere. I was like, oh my God, this is creepy. And so I didn't know if it had to do with them just like having utter control of their reproductive system or what so uh it raised a lot of questions but it definitely was off-putting off uh unsettling there we go unsettling um got me very curious and uh yeah biological horror i i enjoyed what king was doing with that Number three, in terms of the positives found within the Tommy Knockers. So I mentioned this a little bit at the start, but Bobby Anderson is one of our main players. She's one of the most important, the one that the novel focuses very heavily on. And the other one is Jim Gardner. Jim Gardner is a poet. He's also a raging alcoholic. We're going to be talking a lot about him uh, throughout this episode because I really feel a lot of parallels to Jack Torrance a little bit and I definitely think that he might be the sort of potential mirror uh, character that's mirroring Stephen King himself a little bit. Um, just a hypothesis, more on that in a little bit, but Jim Gardner is a poet who, oh, this guy my friends, um, well He's got a very interesting relationship with Bobby, and it's very progressive because basically, and I didn't know if this was a thing in 1987, at least really spoken about or perhaps in the spotlight too much, but they are friends with benefits, a thousand percent. They are in each other's lives. They have a great affection for one another, but they've been sleeping together off and on. Um, he was married for a while, um, but... I kid you not, folks, get ready for this. Um, during one of his raging drunken benders, he shot his wife in the face. I think it didn't kill her. Um, I think it was like on the cheek. Uh, this is one I actually need to do a little bit more research on because I was just so shocked and uh, kind of forgot to look into it in greater detail. But yeah, um, he. this is an interesting guy and we mostly see him in the grips of a of an absolute drunken stupor. Um, he, his writing career is not super sunny. He's trying to do some readings and one of the big scenes we see with Jim Gardner is him getting into a drunken fight at a poetry reading where he gets wrecked and insults people. He goes on a political rant. He is very, very Richard Bachman in his ugliness, crassness, sexism, racism, um, extremely, uh, inappropriate, kind, unkind, and cruel to uh, people of size or anybody overweight. Like, he's just ugly. He's just like an ugly bastard. Uh, very mean. And so Jim Gardner, though, has this very unique friends with benefits relationship 
with Bobby um, because I believe he was her teacher, so a little bit of hot for teacher there, but Bobby's also not a swoony teenager about it. She's really too cool for school, and she's like, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll screw you a little bit. Like, every now and again, like, we'll have sex, but like, and I deeply care for you a lot, and we're very special to each other, but like, you're not, I know who you are, dude. Like, I'm not stupid. I would never get into a relationship with you. So one of the most fascinating things in this novel for me, friends, was the relationship between Bobby and Jim Gardner. I was definitely like, what are they? What are they together? Because this is unique for the 80s. Now it makes total sense. Total sense. And we're definitely used to an unconventional relationship or bond. But for the time this was written, it's very interesting because uh, some constant readers mentioned that this is a really great love story. I, I don't know if I could call it love between the two of them. I think there's a great deal of respect for each other as creatives, as writers, as artists, and I think that they've had some romance. That is definitely explored in the film, the 1993 film. So they share a lot of intimacy together, and I think that Jim cares deeply for uh, Bobby to the point where he really does uh, do some reckless stuff to hitchhike and get to her. Um, he cares. I think he could love her. Um, or rather, he does love her, but I don't think she loves him on that level personally. So it's worth exploring. This is something I would love to talk to all of you guys about this relationship between Bobby and uh, and Jim because I think he loves her more than she loves him personally. And it's, it's easier to see because Jim has a plate in his head from an injury when he was young. Ergo, he doesn't have as strong an influence as Bobby does in regards to our alien visitors, the Tommyknockers. More on that in a little bit. But Bobby is 100% uh, enveloped by this influence. She physically changes into incredibly frightening and unsettling ways. And Jim Gardner is kind of right by her side the entire time in this devoted strange sort of uh Igor to the mad scientist like the <laughs> so this is a fascinating character bond guys and I would really love to discuss it further if anybody has recently read the Tommyknockers what do you think about Jim and Bobby because I really love the dynamic it's made me very curious because I think it's a little more one-sided I think that Jim loves her I don't know if she loves him I think she respects him a lot and this is before she transforms I think she likes to have sex with him I think that maybe when she was a wide-eyed youth and you know she was a pupil of his there might have been you know a little bit more crush stuff but this is what's very cool about Bobby she's strong and uh, unfazed and not super swoony for her teacher who has kind of shown himself to be unstable. He's 
really struggling with alcoholism, really struggling friends, like, oh, whoa. So yeah, more on this in a little bit, but one of the most positive parts within the Tommyknockers is any time the story would jump back to Bobby and Jim, I was like, yes, thank God. So they are a cool dynamic in this story, very, very progressive. Um, the fact that I am still kind of unsure what their bond is, what their connection is, but it just, there's love and tenderness, respect, um, mutual admiration, there's devotion on Jim's side. It's interesting. I don't know if it's like a, a love addicted, love avoidant kind of thing, as, as they say in therapy, who knows? But um, so yeah, any thoughts that you would like to share with me in regards to Jim and Bobby, let me know. Number four, I really loved the storyline of young Hilly Brown and his brother David. Oh my gosh, guys, this is a cool one. Okay, so this is one of my favorite storylines within the Tommyknockers. But basically, as I mentioned, we've got augmented intelligence kind of floating up around the town of Haven. People are making weird stuff and hearing voices, um, becoming influenced by this uh, extraterrestrial presence, which... I'm not going to touch that right now. We'll save it for the next section. But um, Hilly Brown, I believe he's nine or ten years old. And he's got a little brother, David, who is around six years old. And Hilly really likes magic. And during his birthday party, decides to do a magic trick where he's going to make his brother, David, disappear. And David does not want to be a part of the trick. He's scared. He doesn't want to. He's got to stand under a blanket with his head covered. He doesn't like it. Only because the Tommyknockers or this alien presence is now sort of awakened in the town of Haven, when Hilly, uh, who has been influenced by them, does the trick his little brother disappears for real, um, vanishes into thin air. And it is so heartbreaking because this little boy goes into full-on panic and is trying to bargain and negotiate, begging for his little brother to come back and no one can find him. The entire town is looking, searching, search parties, just freaking out about uh, lost David Brown. And we as the reader kind of get a glimpse as to what happened to David. More on that in a little bit, but that was very cool. I love when King does anything with youth and he brings the heartbreak in this storyline with Hilly Brown and his little brother. It's very reminiscent, at least for me, of uh, inside the novel It with Bill Denbro, Kim C's favorite Stephen King character of all time, at least up until this point. At present, Bill Denbro is my favorite character. And uh, when he lost his brother Georgie and that sort of brotherly brokenness of Georgie disappearing, getting taken, gone forever, and Bill just forever altered. I get that same sort of vibe 
here within the storyline with Hilly Brown and his brother David. So the thing with Hilly that's different from Bill though is he kind of goes into full-on shock. Um, and what's strange is I believe the novel mentions autism, like Hilly becomes autistic. Um, and I don't know if maybe enough information was known about autism at that time, obviously not, um, but they mention that when his uh, grandfather Ev Hillman is visiting him in the hospital and was like, you know, he, he stopped speaking, he stops responding, he just went into full-on shock over what happened to his brother, um, and perhaps more than just shock because the Tommyknockers are involved. We've got alien uh, evil out there uh, wreaking havoc. So, but that is such a great part of the story, my guys. So if you are a fan of it and the sort of Bill Denbro, Georgie Denbro storyline, you'll really like this. I really liked it because it made me super duper sympathetic and very interested as to where in the heck did this little boy go? Like what happened? Who took him? Who has him? Um, and it seems that he has been transported somewhere off planet. Uh, so I was gonna try and dance around this, but I just can't. And uh, that place is called Altair 4. More on that later, but it is a desolate black world with very little air. And this sweet baby boy is out there suffering and dying and nobody can help him. So pretty dire, very frightening. But the atmospheric freaky just disappearance and the way king writes about the entire town coming to terms with this kid is gone and no one can find him it's just a wonderful small town snowball effect of i believe it's it's um the other thing i really really love about um coincidentally uh reading uh tommy knockers for the very first time matched up with the season of the book i started it within the last couple uh days in june and <laughs> that's exactly when the story starts in real life so i feel very very connected but it's a hot summer in maine i think it's around fourth of july uh when um this event goes down so a summer in small town america is very very communal lots of celebration especially around the fourth picnics um popsicles uh schools out there's just fun there's there's fun and frivolity and uh relaxation and lots of outdoor stuff especially uh in the east coast when they have good weather so this is horrifying that you're taking an american summer in a small town which should be full of innocence and ice cream and fireworks and putting in pure terror um, and confusion and I really really liked that I liked the juxtaposition of like uh, a hot summer of innocence and then it's all gone and everybody's really confused meanwhile creepy things are happening to everybody they know nobody can explain it they're starting to feel it themselves they're losing teeth they're getting nosebleeds they're getting crazy headaches they're able to hear people's thoughts it starts to get really wild but this is the part in the novel that i definitely perked up um i really really liked it 
so Hilly Brown and his brother David. So number five, this character I'm about to mention, Anne Anderson. Oh my goodness, friends. Okay, so Anne Anderson is Bobby's older sister. She comes in much later in the novel, about 300 pages in. And my guys, this lady is so larger than life and wild and so inappropriate <laughs> like wow um i want more of her i really want more of her in another stephen king iteration i hope i mean judging on what happens to her character i don't think that's possible but i would love a kind of cloned and Anderson because I'm gonna read a quote just to kind of indicate what this lady is like my goodness guys this scene I'm about to read is just King has made this lady there is no other word for it but like this is a power bitch like this is a lady who is a ball buster a man-eater a absolute t-rex of a person in real life and she's just absolutely wild. So I wanted to share this scene with you because she is not in the novel for a very long time, but the time she spends with the reader is extremely memorable. So this is on page 387 in the American hardcover. Cityscape Hotel was full. That was no trouble for Sister Anne. She got herself a double, then bullied the harried manager into giving her another because the air conditioner in the first rattled, and because the color on the TV was so bad, she said, that all the actors looked like they had just eaten shit and would soon die. She unpacked, masturbated to a grim and cheerless climax with a vibrator nearly the size of one of the mutant carrots in Bobby's garden. The only climaxes she had were of the grim and cheerless type. She'd never been with a man in bed and never intended to. Showered, napped, then went to dinner. She scanned the menu with a darkening frown, then bared her teeth in a spitless grin at the waiter who came to take her order. Bring me a bunch of vegetables, raw, leafy vegetables. Madame wants a sal. Madame wants a bunch of raw, leafy vegetables. I don't give a shit what you call them. Just wash them first to get the bug piss off and bring me a sombrero right now. Yes, madam, the waiter said, licking his lips. People were looking at them. A few smiled. But those who got a look at Anne Anderson's eyes soon stopped. The waiter started away, and she called him back, her voice loud and even and undeniable. A sombrero, she said, has Kahlua and cream in it. Cream. If you bring me a sombrero with milk in it, chum, you're going to be shampooing with the motherfucker. The waiter's Adam's up went up and down like a monkey on a stick. He tried to summon the sort of aristocratic, pitying smile, which was a good waiter's chief weapon against vulgar customers. To do him full credit, he got a pretty good start on that smile. Then Anne's lips curved up in a grin that froze it dead. There was no good nature in that grin. There was something like murder in it. I mean it, chum. Sister Anne said. The waiter believed her. Whoa! So that's Anne Anderson, guys, and she is a wild, wild spitfire, and I couldn't help but 
get similar um, inklings that reminded me, although this is of course like comparing a little bunny to a wolf, but uh, the only other bombastic, super crazy, uh, disgusting character was Norman Daniels from 1995's Rose Matter, but Anne Anderson, wow, she was just, she's a man-eater, ball-buster, crass, brash, rude, just zero couth. It was great. And so I really enjoyed my time with Anne and uh, she was fun. And um, I, yeah, <laughs> I kind of hope there's another character like Anne out there later on in the upcoming texts. So let's see, my last character to kind of round out the positives is Ruth McCausland. So Ruth McCausland, like Bobby, I think she's the other pretty big main player in that she is a, a huge uh, kind of sun in the orbit of Haven. Like she's at the center of it. She's everything. She has to do with all kinds of stuff. She's a notary. She's on every committee. She knows everybody and everybody knows her. And what's great about Ruth McCausland is she becomes aware to the sinister terribleness of what's going on. She tries to stop it. So Ruth McCausland actually uses her augmented intelligence to kind of create this crazy battery bomb to uh, try to do some damage into what's happening. She tried to save the town. Emphasis on tried. She was not successful. She did have a kind of very uh, dramatic and elaborate death at the town square in the town center. She tried her best, but I really like this sweet, good-natured lady, Ruth McCausland. In the 1993 film, I think she's played by a female police officer named Meryl, so they changed her name completely, but she's got this mother hen uh, kind of presence, but also just smart, smart. And I think we've seen, we have a few of uh, those females within King's work. I'm reminded of a few from Under the Dome, specifically, I think one of the uh, constable's wives who is murdered by Jim, um, uh, yeah, big uh, Jim Rennie. She was love like, there's a couple Under the Dome Chester's Mill women who remind me of Ruth McCausland, just these sweet women who are strong. They won't take any crap. Um, they've been through a lot. They've lost a lot, but they are devoted to the town and devoted to its citizens. And she's out looking for Bobby, or pardon me, she's out looking for David Brown. Um, after he disappears, she's, she's just always trying to help. And she's one that King always, she gives, he gives her a lot of presence. And she, she has a very climactic exit to the novel. I really wish she could have stayed in there longer. She was sweet. It reminds me of one of the Golden Girls, sort of a very supercharged, powerful Golden Girl. 
But to recap, to recap my sweet listeners, thank you for sticking with me. The positives that I found within the Tommy Knockers are Bobby Anderson and the beginning, her and her sweet old beagle Peter, super precious. Number two, the physical symptoms. We've got a lot of body horror that King is working with. We've got blood, uh, tooth loss, teeth loss, uh, loss of teeth. <laughs> we have augmented intelligence, invention, mind reading. We got all kinds of stuff. Uh, also, we have physical stuff. More on that in the next section. Number three, the relationship between Jim Gardner and Bobby Anderson. Number four, Hilly Brown and his little brother, David. Number five, uh, that powerhouse, uh, T-Rex of a lady and Anderson, the older sister to Bobby Anderson. Wow, that lady is a wrecking ball. And number six, the sweet epicenter of Haven, Ruth McCausland. So uh, I, if I find or discover any other additional positives, I will definitely bring them to light in the next section. But oh, dear listeners, it was difficult to find more than those uh, that I listed just now. Unfortunately, there's a lot more problematic elements to discuss in the next section. Um, But I'm going to do it in a way where we start off with where I feel it all went wrong. So I won't be overly redundant there. But we're going to take a look at basically what I feel just we never even really got the train on the tracks, guys. That's kind of how I feel with this one. So uh, as we head into the next section, tune in for exploring how one might be able to fix the Dominoggers or what exactly makes it a very challenging King book, other than the fact that this was the last story before sobriety. So more on that in a little bit. I'll see you in the next section. Greetings and more greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the main event. This is where we're going to roll up our sleeves and dig into this dinner and figure out why it doesn't taste so good. (laughs) So this is the section of the episode where we're going to look at constructive criticism. I'm not going to let the insults fly because we, of course, are academics and we're going to analyze it uh, using the scientific method (laughs) as well as our context from uh, the text, from our reader observations, our own comprehension, but I am going to take into account that this novel is perhaps deservedly so in terms of low opinion in King's catalog and low readership, poor ratings. I think it's valid, and so we're going to take a look as to maybe why that is. So I had a lot of scribblings on this one, mostly negative, but we're going to kick things off by kind of highlighting to everybody that at the end of the novel, we see a 
re a writer timeline uh, King puts down in either I think it's early to mid 1982 concluding in 1987. So it appears to the reader as though this were a five-year endeavor. And I think that King has had significant chunks of time composing a work before. Time isn't necessarily indicating that the longer he took to write it, the worse it is. No, no. However, with this work particularly, I have a feeling that it took five years and maybe five different versions of King <laughs> wrote it during that time because that is how it reads. So out of all of my negative little scribblings and bullet points, I let it gel for a little while, which is why this episode is kind of taken a little bit of time to get off the ground. This one sort of uh, scrambled me a little bit as to how can I synthesize my feelings in an academic way that makes sense without me sounding like a giant unhappy brat. Um, but I, I kind of let things solidify a little bit and I think I have a good uh, sort of soapbox to stand on that I could back up in court. So when I do, when I hope to debate this novel further with others, because I know it, I'm sure it has its fans out there, I think I'm ready. I think I have enough to stand on with the following points. Uh, but before I begin, uh, one of the main reasons, this is sort of like the main a cornerstone I think I'm gonna propose to all of you. But the reason why I feel this novel is not successful, why it's clunky, sloppy, bloated, is because I think King's writing style, the way he works and moves and jives, concerning this particular subject matter, it's 100% working against him. So let me break this down a little further before we get deeper into it. But for those of us who have been uh, reading King for many years, or if you've heard him speak in interviews, he's really upfront and forthcoming with his style. And he is, I mean, one of the reasons why he's just the prolific master is he's very unorthodox when it comes to composing fiction. Super duper uh, different breed of cat. Typically, most writers have a great deal planned out ahead of time, and some writers, in fact, a lot who I work with um, at the student level have every detail planned out uh, specifically concerning plot, and I see this a lot with my sci-fi fantasy students because the world building is, oh, they're just like gods. They're creating everything in their imagination and it's the most fun part of the creative process and they just go completely all out uh, off the rails with it and uh, creating this world. But King has been very vocal over the years about discovering the text as he's writing it. So how King differs is when he gets an idea, he starts to run with it, build a character, and he kind of legitimately makes it up as he goes along. 
he uncovers the story. I think he's even used the example of walking on the beach and just digging something up in the sand with your feet. Like, he's discovering a story. Almost nine out of the ten times, that's exactly how his process is. And obviously, this is extremely effective because he's the freaking master of the craft and spins straw into gold and makes us care about people and the state of Maine more than our own families. But this time, guys, I feel with the Tommyknockers, he really struck out with this method. And I believe he struck out because his style of writing is working against him. And his own creative method, rather than assist him, rather than create magic, no! Um, and here's what I mean by that. So he gets this idea about aliens, right? The story is alien-centered. We've got an alien ship discovered by a woman walking her dog. Cool, good, great, great hook, terrific opener. But what was needed, what was really needed, my guys, was a deeper look, a deeper grasp into the alien lore he wanted to build. And he does not provide that for the reader. He, what he does provide is a little of this, a little of that, and it's pretty much derived from Lovecraft. Um, and he just skimped too many places. And, and it mat those places mattered so much. They had such heavy weight. And um, it, it ends up being a huge problem. So I think, just my personal hypothesis, I feel King did not really think about, and we observe this from what we read in the text. This is not me just assuming or imagining. From my readership, from what I gathered from the text, he did not really think about the kind of aliens he wanted to make. He did not really take the time to brainstorm how he wanted his particular aliens to influence the world in this particular city. Uh, it's very vague. And I believe we needed more concrete world building to occur in this story, and we just don't have it. He lives a little too ambiguous. He, he lives, he creates this scenario and then leaves it a little too ambiguous. And what's also very upsetting is he's like overly specific in other areas which maybe needed a bit more mystery. For example, stay with me everybody. So these aliens, we don't know much about them, and yet we have a character who has, and this is no exaggeration folks, this legitimately happens in the novel, we have a character who has a see-through skin her breasts have fused together in this kind of unibreast, and uh, all of a sudden she has tentacles, hello Cthulhu from Lovecraft, that emerge from her vagina. Yeah, you heard that right folks. So uh, 
we have so much mystery for hundreds of pages and then we kind of get this like pervy Cthulhu Lovecraft moment and then not much else after uh, in, in terms of transformation. And what I feel King did poorly with this iteration, specifically concerning the example I just mentioned, is just making it too hot and cold. And there's so much hot and cold, everything's half-baked. Everything is raw dough in the middle, my guys. It really is. And so this preface uh, will hopefully lead me to my first point, my first uh, giant, <laughs> humongous, uh, alien-sized spacecraft point of contention. Number one, what kind of aliens, Steve? Are they good or are they bad? And of course, naturally, this being a horror novel, they're bad aliens. Contextually, with what's been going on in the town, specifically the big engine woods where the actual craft is buried, um, apparently they're very much bad. And uh, perhaps my my thing with this is, is oh, all right, we've got these negative aliens, but what I think King started to do, and I don't think he did this consciously, because like I said earlier, I don't think he was really thinking about the aliens in a specific concrete way. So what he does is maybe, and this is my selling point, guys, maybe he makes them a little too close to how ghosts behave or angry spirits, right? We have such hot and cold actual alien data for the reader, but what we do have is an overall sentiment of angry spirits, which kind of makes me wish King would have just made a ghost story rather than an alien story because I think it would have landed better. For example, regarding aliens put the notion of aliens in your mind. In fiction and in film, we typically have two kinds. Uh, we have the sweet, curious colors and music playing ones from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or the really nice underwater aliens from The Abyss. And if those titles sound foreign to you, please stop everything and watch those movies. They are terrific extraterrestrial films. Um, and they're nice. The aliens in those films are nice. They assist mankind and all the good stuff. And then you have the bad aliens who are so superior to our plebeian earthling selves that why not just annihilate us? much like one of my favorite alien stories, that is War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Uh, and in that one, um, the aliens just straight up invade, they land all over our planet, and vaporize us by the millions. Or everybody's 1996 favorite, Independence Day, another good one, just barbecuing our cities, terraforming our planet, and straight up scraping us off the windshield of existence, guys. Like, those are our parameters with aliens in fiction, right? I know it's rudimentary. I know it's really simple, but it works. 
very simple. Are you a nice alien or do you want to destroy us? Do you want to absolutely extinguish us, right? But what King does here with the Tommyknockers is make them act like ghosts or evil spirits and it doesn't work. It doesn't work, friends. I tried. You know I try. You know I try really hard. I love King and I would rather, ugh, well, I would rather do a lot of things than speak ill of the King. But uh, it just, I couldn't, I tried to suspend my disbelief and it just didn't hold water. So for example, let me tie this in. We have a really bloated section of the novel where we learn an extensive history on the city of Haven, the names of its previous iterations, and I believe we get data, gosh, starting like 1880s, 1890s in terms of how the town was founded, and decade by decade we hear of terrible Oh, terrible things um, occurring in the town, uh, such as child rape and baby murder, and there's also some super mysterious forest disappearances, people getting lost for days on end, disappearing forever, um, accidentally shooting friends, like creepy stuff, right? Uh, and then, of course, we've got the Micmac tribe. Hey, hey, Pet Cemetery. The Micmac tribe of natives, of course, calling the woods cursed and haunted, right? So for me, guys, why would the aliens, the aliens that we typically have in fiction, the good or the bad, these supreme, superior beings, light years ahead of our intelligence, why? Why, why, why would they lie in the cold ground and slowly over the generations give a delicate push over time to the, the, the several hundred citizens of this small main town? They just give them a gentle nudge towards sexual immorality and human sin. My question to all of you guys is what's the point? Because soul corruption is what ghosts do, right? So uh, an example, if you guys jump back to my episode on Bag of Bones or if you've read that novel and have it in mind, holy crap, that is a novel about ghosts, my guys. That is a novel about cursed ground and why a spirit would cause terrible things to happen to an entire town and oh, oh my god I don't even want to think about Bag of Bones it was so <laughs> um, if you haven't heard my episode on Bag of Bones and you just want to hear Kim C fall apart due to novel trauma yeah well jump back there but um Bag of Bones that fits the the cursedness the uh haunting of a town it fits because the narrative is connected to a life who was victimized and that victimized life the spirit that has remained is of course enraged 
hence the notion of a spirit of unrest. It's not resting because it wants revenge with a capital R. And so the notion of haunting is what King starts playing with in this book, guys. And so the buried alien ship has haunted the woods of Haven, right, for a long time, influencing its citizens to do bad things. Uh, but the evidence we have as the reader is that all it's done, all the ship has done over time, at least since the 1890s that we know of, is uh, contribute to tales of crime within the town. And yet, it isn't until 1987, at the start of our novel, that we start getting the advanced intelligence and the inventions and the actual physical transformations, which really only one person gets, and that's Bobby Anderson. Only Bobby starts to become like a human jellyfish girl. Uh, nobody else really gets that. They get teeth falling out and heavy bleeding and kind of wasting away. So it's like, uh, so what the hell is happening, uh, right? Until, so all those years when the ship was in the ground, we had no transformation. Granted, I understand all of it started to happen when Bobby started to dig the ship up. But it's like, okay, so we've got no transformation, no invention, no advanced intelligence until 1987. So my point on this is, guys, if we could take what I've been saying for the last few minutes and put it all in a little capsule, my thoughts is that King needed to really spend some time within the parameters of what kind of alien aliens did he want to work with nice ones or mean ones once more i know it's super juvenile very rudimentary but that simplicity would have been appreciated at least for me because in my reading these aliens act like ghosts and i'm very confused and i don't really respect them the aliens seem very dumb to me i'm not afraid of them i don't care about them I find what they do to the townspeople very silly, and I think I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't feel that way um, with with aliens and with an ancient craft in the ground. You know, I should be really concerned, really freaked out. But I feel the way King writes over these five years, I think he just loses the string quite a bit and makes them behave like ghosts and something evil and something cursed. Uh, if you've read Bag of Bones, the ghost in that story had every reason to haunt the town uh, of Darkscore Lake. She, uh, yeah, most definitely, oh, pardon, I am revealing that it is, in fact, a female. It is, pardon that spoiler, but this ghost, um, has every right in the world to do that. But these aliens, I just, they seem like ghosts to me. And that is pulling me away from what I think in terms of aliens, like, uh, beneficial, benevolent creatures who are kind to mankind, want to help us, uh, want to introduce us to their galactic federation pals and perhaps help us with climate change, or do they want to vaporize us, uh, like H.G. Wells said. And 
King could have really had a good time with that. But we get like ghost aliens who who just make us do bad sinful things. And it's like, okay, well, we don't need aliens for that. We're humans. That that darkness is already inside of us. So I was really sad panda about that, guys. So overall, the aliens are sorely lacking development, lacking roots in King's mind. And that's because his writing style is working against him here. So that's probably the biggest point I have in terms of criticism. Uh, the second one is, of course, too many characters. And this is a this is a tough one because I know that this is the kind of novel, much like Under the Dome, which I feel Tommy Knockers was like the appetizer novel that paved the way for Under the Dome. I really feel that now because Under the Dome is a tremendously stronger work that I feel was executed far better than this one. And even that one had a polarizing ending involving extraterrestrials. So I'd like to do more coverage on Under the Dome uh, down the road here in the future, but um, this is an ensemble cast novel, and when you start reading the book, you don't really get that for a while. At least the first hundred pages, you're really wrapped up in Bobby Anderson and Jim Gardner. That is a large, that, those two are a very large part of the novel. And then after we spend so much time with these two characters who are compelling and interesting, then King just backpedals and says, oh, uh, oh, 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 well, pause there, reader, and let's look at the town of Haven. Let's look at this town, and let's look at the this lady named Ruth McCauslin. Let's look at this guy who was a preacher, and he impregnated all these random women, and you're just like, okay, when are we getting back to Bobby and Jim? Uh, and we just barely do. We keep, keep hopscotching around through the generations, learning about these different people and how they're all doing terrible things within the town of Haven. And you're supposed to believe that it's connected to the aliens, of course, but it's just, ugh. It's... So the characters, it's hard for me to say too many characters. I don't like the fact that I have to say it because I love King's characters. He's one of the strongest character writers ever. He's one of the strongest character creators we have. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I believe he's so celebrated and beloved. Uh, so for me to say a sentence like that, it's hard. I don't like to say it. However, it's not, there are too many characters in this novel and they're flat. They're not working. They are uh, puffery. They are really just like puffs of smoke. Um, forgettable, kind of silly, um, no, no, not resonating in my mind. And several of them I absolutely forgot uh, quickly. Um, and I think that the reason why that was is because this novel did not start as an ensemble cast novel, much like Salem's Lot, like Under the Dome, where we get a tiny little spoonful of a character, then we hop to another, hop to another, and then the reader is kind of informed from the very beginning, like, okay, like, we're gonna meet everybody, we're gonna get to know everybody, and we're gonna be like that bird's eye view of the town, we know what everybody's doing, we know who they are, all that 
that good stuff. That's some of the magic in uh, King's ensemble cast novels. This is one of the reasons I'm excited to take a look at Needful Things, which a lot of you have pointed out to me is really being a good one. So that should be coming up later on this fall, right around the November area. We're going to shoot for that one, but I could probably list on one hand the characters that resonated enough with me in this book so that's about five and uh we probably have three times that uh listed in this book we we definitely have over a dozen characters if not more they're all sort of important to the town um you know some are stronger than others of course um but it's like uh, i do any of them connect to the aliens? N -n not really. Um, maybe a little bit in terms of they start building a crazy invention. They do something bad, uh, usually in terms of murder or adultery or uh, something unsavory like that. Um, but yeah, we, we have too many characters that fall a little flat. And I really wish that King could have gone two ways with it. Either you start from the very beginning with the town of Haven, right? You don't let us get too attached to either. Or, or you trim the fat, cut the flat characters, keep the rich ones, and, you know, leave a lot of mystery regarding this whatever it is in the ground and what it could be yeah so i'm gonna do another episode on how we would edit this like if somebody knocked on our door and said we want to make the tommy knockers movie in the next year we need you to help us write the script like what would we do guys i think that would be a really fun project for my students as well as another episode so i'm probably gonna do something with that but the characters we have a lot of them most of them don't resonate, they arrive too late, or they're just poorly executed. So that's my uh, my third one. Uh, number three, uh, Tommy Knockers, the word, is slightly uh, silly. Um, so Tommy Knockers, we come to find out at the very end of the novel, is not really the aliens that we found in the ground or that have been in the earth, but rather the people that have become, in quotes, and what that means, I really don't know in terms of become, I believe, aside from Bobby, who really did transform into a jellyfish woman, um, it seems like the town of Haven lost a lot of teeth. They were able to read each other's minds. They contributed a lot of inv a strange inventions. They also allowed their thoughts to mind meld and perhaps give a lot of energy to the ship. So, yeah, um, it's a little bit silly. Uh, however, I understand that it's, again, back to my thoughts about King channeling ghosts. Tommy Knockers, to me, I just think boogeyman, right? It's the boogeyman notion of like a strange, unknowable something under the bed. And uh, so boogeyman works. However, when it comes to aliens and space, it's, uh, I don't know. 
um, not the strongest. But um, back to aliens really quick. Uh, we do have, toward the end of the book, uh, some physical descriptions of the aliens, which I was very glad for. Um, but what was interesting is this is almost toward the end of the novel, kind of the climax in which there's movement in the ship, there's a lot of dead bodies, um, and the aliens inside have been dead for a really long time. But King, I believe the direct quote, calls them uh, kind of slaves and cavemen. So he uses those exact words to describe the aliens. Um, and this is knowledge and awareness given to Jim Gardner, right? So it's like, uh, <laughs> slaves and, and I think all we have as the reader is just, okay, these aliens, based on King's description, crashed on Earth, but they crashed perhaps because they were killing each other. So there's rage and and um, anger and hate and wild savagery inside the alien craft. And I'm just like, ah, they're supposed to be smarter than us. <laughs> they're supposed to be a higher intelligence. Like, I, but I, I, that's why I we needed more lore, guys. We needed more time in the cook pot. What kind of aliens are these? Are okay if you want to make them wild savages, then they're just okay. Is Altair Four just like a junkyard planet, and these are just you know whatever reject Star Wars creature that just wants to eat human flesh? I don't know. And because I don't know, my imagination is just kind of going off the rails a little bit. And when that happens, I return to the text, see what we have, and it's not much, and I'm hungry for more. So to recap, um, King's writing style, my guys, I love it. I adore it. We all do. He is <laughs> very much like a maestro with a paintbrush, right? He just puts the brush to the canvas, magic happens, and they go for a hundred million dollars, right? Like he creates masterpieces. He really does. But with this story, with aliens, it's not working. He needs to give us more world building and he just doesn't. It's almost as if he doesn't like to do it. So uh, his writing style works against him here. And him discovering the story over a five-year period? No, 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 no. And then, of course, the aliens, good or bad, obviously bad, but what are they? You know, why, why do they act like ghosts? Why did he have, why did he choose to do that? Um, too many characters, Tommy Knockers is silly, and lastly, this thing needs significant editing, my guys. Um, there is a scene early in the novel where Jim Gardner is at a poetry reading and goes on a drunken rant. And the rant, I think, is present in order to show the reader that this guy is really off his rocker and has a problem with alcohol. And I'm glad that we do have the character of Jim. We also see Jim in a really sort of terrible state a few days later where he's definitely just been in a, on a bender and ends up on the beach, like, covered in his own filth and vomit and, like, 
he doesn't have any shoes, he has no money, like it's rough. And so, but there are many areas in this book where there is ranting specifically about politics, specifically about like Chernobyl and Russia and nuclear war and um, it goes on too long. There are characters that deserve to be absolutely ripped out of this book because they contribute nothing. They're entirely forgettable. They don't even, they don't even provide to the reader what wallpaper does. Like they're barely there in our consciousness. Um, this is a 500 page book and as King has said before, it could have been 300, definitely. We needed to significantly chop this thing and I don't feel it had the proper editing. And so what I would like to do in an upcoming episode is maybe tell you the exact parts I would chop and what I would keep and how I would restructure this thing. So we'll see if we can make an episode out of that. I think it would be a fun project. But I would also really love to hear what your thoughts would be on Tommyknockers. How would you edit it? What would you keep? How would you restructure it? I think I might do a poll. We might have some fun with this one because this is a fun book to pick apart. As I mentioned, it's very much like being in my grandma's junk room. I'm sifting through a lot of dusty crap and uh, broken plastic and packaging and, you know, dusty plastic bags of god knows what and yet then i find some treasure <laughs> then i find <laughs> then i find a really cool doll or a stuffed something a stuffed something so i really want to explore the editing of this book because had this thing had a stronger eye perhaps a stricter eye or king himself would have maybe I don't know, maybe let this thing get in the stew pot for a little bit. I, I re remember, this is the substance abuse one. This is the last one. Maybe if we would have had a little bit more uh, so sober eyes looking at this, uh, you never know. You never know because we've got some bloated sections with Jim Gardner. We have some overly long meandering, oh gosh, there's a lot of places where I was reading it and I was like, why are we here? Why was this kept in the book? This is contributing to nothing. So I'd like to highlight some of those places for you later on in a different episode when we get into a nitty gritty with it, a little bit deeper than we are now as a fun project. But overall, once more, uh, we needed a little bit more ideas from King, a stronger, stronger presence, stronger grasp on what kind of aliens he wanted to give us. Um, we've got too much of a good thing, too many characters. So, um, I'd like to know what you think about this. Uh, so let's sort of take a breather and I'll meet you in our last section where we're going to talk about the 1993 film, The Tommyknockers, starring Jimmy Smits and Marg Helgenberger. Uh, we're going to discuss some things because there's some fun stuff I found in that one, as well as my final thoughts about The Tommyknockers. I'll see you there. I want to go out. 
don't know if I can, because I'm so afraid of the Tommyknocker man. All right, guys, we've reached the end. This is the last section I want to share with everybody regarding 1987's The Tommyknockers. So right now we're going to talk about the film as well as my final thoughts regarding the book and why I do believe, I really do believe we should give it a chance if only just to take a look at one of the books that King quoted to Rolling Stone in 2014 as being awful. He actually says this, this is an awful book, and this was one of the last ones before I cleaned up my act. So there is something incredibly interesting about it. Um, I, I do recommend, so we're going to talk about uh, some of the reasons why I think it is worth investigating, but let's look at the 1993 two-part miniseries starring Jimmy Smith as Jim Gardner and Marg Helgenberger as Bobby Anderson. So firstly, friends, okay, um, if you've seen it, you know, if you are a younger king reader or um somebody born after 1995 you gen zers so this movie is laughably bad friends okay like real bad um ridiculous um so Please have that in mind as you go into it. Uh, King himself said he did not like it. It seemed contrived, thrown together. Uh, yes, it feels very silly. Um, however, uh, like we're investigating the junk room, not only in the novel, but in this film, there were some things I was very surprised by and actually enjoyed. Firstly, I found that the film did a great job of structuring itself a lot better than the novel. It understood that this was a book about a town, like that's what the novel is about, so it didn't mess around with giving us too much time on Jim and Bobby confusing us as to what the heck's going on. So it definitely did a nice job structuring the ensemble nature of the town of Haven and showing us all kinds of characters and day-to-day -day life. Um, I really liked the depiction of Ruth McCausland. She's Ruth Merrill in the story. She's a police officer with a creepy room filled with dolls, which um, I forgot to say in the last section. I know I said it was kind of cheesy, but the Tommy Knockers is actually a thing, my guys. It is a little gnome person. Um, if any of my UK folks out there would like to provide <laughs> any additional context to like how old is this thing how old is the lore of a Tommyknocker of a a little gnome-esque creature um, that seems to be the general consensus the internet has brought forth is that it's gnome-like it's little which is why I kind of was very uh, upset that I King gives us a description of like an over six foot gangly, fierce, dead alien body with a triangular head 
And then it's referenced alongside a little gnome guy, a little mischievous leprechaun-esque creature. I'm so confused. Oh, oh, Steve. Oh my goodness, you were so messed up. <laughs> so, um, but the movie itself uh, focused really well on the heart of the novel, which is about the town of Haven. Uh, what I also liked, and if you guys ever check it out, you can watch it in a number of places, or if you have a dusty VHS out there, let me know. That's awesome. But Mark Helgenberger and Jimmy Smits did an amazing job. Like, the two of them, the script really made the Jim Gardner-Bobby Anderson relationship a lot steamier than it was. They definitely made it sexy. These guys definitely shag more than once on screen. They, Jimmy Smith is intense. Like, I think, I don't know. I don't know if casting was right or wrong, but he definitely brings the intensity to Jim Gardner, and as a poet, I think that works. Jim is a super duper hothead. Uh, we see him rant and rave at a party. He's explosively angry. He's fiery. Um, which, ugh, more on that character in general. Oh my god, Jim Gardner. Um, I'll, I have more thoughts toward the end on that, but... Uh, He's pretty sexy in this story, and his chemistry with Bobby, um, I think Marg Helgenberger is a perfect Bobby. She's beautiful, but understated, just lovely. She's tomboyish, but uh, is serious and curious, and there's that knowing silence. I don't know. I was picking it up. I was like, dang, okay, Mark Helgenberger, I see you. She was a perfect casting choice for Bobby. So every now and again, when I have a Stephen King adaptation that I know is not going to be very good, I still want to check it out because A, I'm an obsessed fan, and B, I do like the, uh, the little treasures you can find when you sift through the junk room, uh, which is, you know, really the entire quest of this novel, definitely. If, if any particular novel had a motto, it would be that. Um, so I love that we get truly compelling performances from the two of them. They took it really seriously. I don't think they let the cheesy alien shenanigans, you know, the silly Power Ranger set. I, I swear, you guys, at the end of that movie, it looks like they were on the Mighty Morphin Power Ranger soundstage. I kid you not. It's ridiculous. But I they they gave it their all. They put their heart into it and their chemistry was fiery. It was one of those every now and again when I see an on-screen couple that's just on fire. I know that it could just be acting magic and that they totally are just giving their best performance with and they're maybe inspired by each other but every now and again the little tommy knocker in me thinks that they boned in real life like <laughs> i'm always like did you guys bang it out before you filmed because i believe it i believe it if like how else could it be explained the chemistry is fire it's 10 out of 10 you guys must have had some uh carnal 
knowledge beforehand. Um, that's just me being mischievous. Uh, however, if it's true, I would die. If anybody has any insider scoop on that, let me know. But please watch the Tommyknockers for the performance of Mark Helgenberger and Jimmy Smith. It's pretty good. Uh, definitely too good for this very silly movie in which a lot of hokey stuff happens. For example, Tracy Lords is a character she plays Nancy, who I don't even remember from the book, uh, and she has a lipstick ray gun that she makes with her Tommyknocker knowledge, her alien advanced intelligence, and she twists the lipstick tube and uh, a streaming bolt of green light hits two police officers and they vanish. Yes, uh, that is correct. Um, that happened. It is... It's so bad I'm speechless, friends. So just, just a heads up, this is a very comical watch. However, there's some interesting little things. The other thing I like about the film is, of course, they do all the right things. Uh, slightly spoilers here, but of course, um, at the ending of the Tommyknockers novel, little David Brown is alive. Uh, I don't really know how that happened. I have a theory, but of course, the movie does everything right. It saves the dog, it saves the woman, it saves the kids, it saves all the good people, um, because all of those people, of course, were not super safe in the novel, Bobby in particular did not have a good fate. Um, sweet, precious Peter the Beagle is also does not have a good fate in the novel, and of course the movie does right by that. However, they didn't choose a beagle. They have a kind of shaggy, shaggy dog. I do not know my dog breeds. Please forgive me. I'm much more of a feline fan, but I love all animals. Um, however, that breed of, um, of shaggy dog, he was spared, thank goodness, and uh, yeah, it was nice to kind of have some happy endings. I did like the fact that Bobby lived and was spared, and I kind of like that Jim Gardner, at the end of the novel, well, at the end of the novel and at the end of the film, there's a similar sort of fate there with Jim as the fall down drunk, the not successful poet, the guy who really loves, kind of, and this is what's so interesting about Bobby and Jim, is I, they are friends with benefits really to the core. I do think that there's love there, um, but it's a lot more so on Jim's side, probably because he's a little bit more of a wounded soul, uh, and Bobby is so much stronger, and so she doesn't really love him to the depths that he loves her, probably because she doesn't need him the way that he needs her in terms of professional validation, in their art form, in their craft, as well as, you know, the fact that she was once his student, and he's a fall-down drunk, guys. Like, this guy is an alcoholic and he is the character who is really the one to watch and 
king like we see at the end of The Shining with Jack Torrance. Jack Torrance, of course, is a very similar character to Jim Gardner. Um, we have a few of those. I would even consider Paul Sheldon, as I talked about in my Misery episode. He's another uh, parallel to Jack Torrance. And of course, we're talking about the substance abuse. We're talking about King under the influence, King in the grips of addiction. So these characters are recurring and they have inner violence, oftentimes outer violence. They have explosive tempers. They are mean and the way they think is ugly and the way they treat people is just cruel. Um, all three of those characters pretty similar. We see that again echoing very loudly with Jim Gardner and at the end uh, King gives him redemption through a heroic act, much like we see at the end of The Shining with Jack Torrance, a heroic act in the final moments of The Overlook. Um, and Paul, Paul, his is a little more tragic, I think, but uh, we definitely see him survive, uh, which the other ones don't. So I guess King does give him a little bit of reprieve, letting um, the alcoholic sort of at least one of them get another day in the sun or have a redemptive act. And there's something huge about that, guys. When we look at the fact that this is about addiction, this is, you know, King, a rhythm, a recurring theme in his work is the alcoholic writer or the alcoholic creator. And Jim Gardner is a drunk poet who just can't get it right. Um, but at the end, he does. And there's a lot of hope, and I think that's sort of King crying out to the reader, basically maybe asking the reader, all of us, or maybe anybody out there who has those in their lives who they love suffering from addiction to not give up on them. And there's something pretty loaded with that. We might explore that deeper in another section. Um, I'm kind of getting all over the place, but back to the movie. Uh, please give it a go specifically to see its structure. I really like how they focused upon the town, which I think they did a better job than the novel did. And then a steamy performance between Marg and Jimmy, Jimmy Smith. I like that their love story was a lot stronger than in the book. Um, in the book, it's super progressive. It's very interesting to see the dynamic because, yeah, yeah, I I really just felt that Bobby really wasn't into him as much as Jim was into her. And yet, even at the very end, Jim just calls her a friend, even in his final moments. And you're just like, wow, it was interesting because he was. They were really all up in each other's business and. Uh, sharing a lot of everything together. So very interesting relationship. One that I would say is one of the number one reasons I would explore this novel a little bit more. Other than the fact of everybody should grab their magnifying glass and really look at one of the messiest, most poorly executed King works, but also to see that even at his worst, you know, <laughs> even at his most terrible, most confused, most disjointed, King is still the best there is. Um, so the movie 
laughable but give it a go I think some of the descriptions as far as what things look like in the book they did a great job with the green light some of the chambers some of the strange inventions so there is some good stuff in there if especially if you like the Tommyknockers novel if you did find some charm in it some curiosity the green light that is the persistent sort of creepy sneaky image throughout the text is heavily present it's very cool um so i actually found myself enjoying even though i laughed quite a bit when i shouldn't have been laughing uh the tommy knockers is pretty pretty decent um it's fun but yeah uh jim and bobby super sexy i was not expecting that so uh, I definitely give it a go, but just know it's silly and King himself wasn't even that big of a fan. So let's boil it down. I know I've been kind of hopscotching around that area already, but overall, dear listeners, I super appreciate you hanging on with me through this investigation. I decided to take this book just really simple, uh, a very... Uh, elementary path of what's good and what's not just because I yeah this is a messy one and King has himself has called it an awful book ergo I think we're allowed to throw stones but when I throw stones I want to do it in a way that looks at it 365 um, 360 that's what I meant <laughs> 360 degrees uh, 365 is days in a year um, yeah I think I might have got microwave nuked by some Tommy knocker green rays there um but I encourage that if you're somebody who's very curious about this catalog uh chunk of king's if you're interested in the chunk of king's uh writing where we've got some <laughs> interesting compositions and that are steeped in substance abuse we have some good stuff to sift through and the tommy knockers is messy it's not enjoyable i don't think i'll read it again but i'm glad i did specifically for the character of jim gardner um as well as bobby anderson i really enjoyed her a lot but it's about jim gardner guys the alcoholic poet like at the end of the day, uh, that's who King was writing about and writing for. He was kind of looking in the mirror a little bit, I really think. We have some really pivotal scenes with Jim at that uh, writer's, at the poetry reading, where he just gets wrecked and insults people and I think punches somebody. I think he gets, I think he falls and hits his head. We see him on the beach covered in vomit, you know, it's just yucky. He hitchhikes to find Bobby. He doesn't have shoes. He doesn't have money. He hitchhikes with several strange people through Haven trying to get to his friend. He is with her for weeks as she undergoes this uh, transformation in her body, um, and he... Uh, 
gets busted and broken and sees horrific things and in the end does something selfless, which I think is what maybe King did in the end um, or wanted his characters to do. So it's fascinating to look at these characters throughout um, King's catalog. Uh, what is the mirror image? What is King writing? about himself and so in terms of addiction this is huge um i'm very happy that at the end of the tommy knockers as i mentioned i really enjoyed the storyline between hilly brown and his little brother david it reminded me very much of bill denbro and georgie from it so we do have a happy ending there however it's a little ambiguous because we are told as the reader about altair 4 or Altair 4. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's this desolate dark world with black rock and no air. And I, my only thoughts are, I guess, Jim in the final moments of the novel where he, with his brain, um, somehow forces the ship to rise off the ground and shoot into space. And I wonder if it was sort of like an exchange, like a quid pro quo, like I am sacrificing myself for the young boy, let's do a switcheroo. No idea how that happened. We have zero context as to what might have transpired or how that went down. However, I might have missed something. I was definitely getting pretty, uh, pretty over it in the last hundred pages. I was very sick of the book already, uh, which is sad, sad to report. However, I am happy that uh, David returned to his little brother Hilly. However, the town's pretty much gone, so I'm a little concerned for who's going to take care of the boys. They're very young. I'm also also concerned as to whether or not David's a little monster. Like, did he get transformed? Did he have alien DNA injected into him when on Altair 4? Like, I have a zillion questions. King could have done some amazing things with that and could have really make, made a cool space horror novel with that. I would have definitely uh, stuck around if there was some more um, twists and turns with little David Brown. Uh, so I'm happy that we had a good ending concerning a young child and the most compelling characters um, of David and Hilly Brown. I liked that. I really liked the relationship between Jim and Bobby Anderson. And so with, with those that I mentioned in our positive section, as well as Overall, guys, the character of Jim, um, please look at this story, especially if you would like to examine some of the the drunken years with, uh, for lack of a better uh, descriptor, or the substance abuse years, or because, um, yeah, cocaine was involved as well. <laughs> so taking a look, there is some good stuff. It's not all bananas and uh, nonsense and disjointed clunky storytelling. Although we do have a lot of that, uh, this is a messy book, but even at his messiest, King is still a prolific writer where we can always learn from him. And this is a tremendous teaching text, guys. And I think that's why I really enjoyed breaking it down and putting the puzzle pieces into these categories to take a look at how a messy book is still interesting and maybe 
how we can fix it because I really do uh, want to do another episode on some of the changes I would make to the Tommy knockers because this is a compelling creative exercise if we were all able to put our brains together in a haven Tommy knocker mind meld um, how would we fix this what would we do to gut it because King has said and I love this I love that he said this he says there's a good story in there there is a good 300 to 400 pager and I think he's right and which is why this novel is very interesting to sift through however if you're gonna sit down and really give it a lot on your life Oh, tread carefully, tread carefully, friends. I would recommend other titles before this one, most definitely, and I do feel it is deservedly so at the bottom of the barrel in terms of King Works. This is definitely this one and The Running Man, which I know is a Bachman title, but ooh, not a fan. Um, I would definitely put The Running Man below this one. Uh, that one's pretty far down on my list, but this one's down there, folks. This one's down there um, just because uh, taking a look at it, I did not enjoy reading it, and anything that makes me want to stop reading is a huge red flag. And uh, that was this one. So, overall, I would like you to watch the show. Get your hands on the 1993 movie and tell me what you think. And if you want to sift through the Tommy Knockers, definitely read the first hundred pages because I want you to read about Bobby and her dog Peter because that is all of us in 2021 and man I think even King would be surprised as to how closely this thing echoes to the now so definitely read up on Bobby she is great um, we need to chop a lot of the Haven stuff, and we definitely need to bring to light a lot more of Jim. So stay tuned. The Tommy Knocker coverage will continue a skosh because I'm my uh, my academic sensors are firing on high. My blasters are up to the highest level. the The ship is definitely firing its thrusters in terms of ideas. And so I want to have an episode where we talk about the deep changes I would make. Um, this is going to be a fun creative exercise I might pose to students down the road, but you might be my guinea pigs, everybody. So stay tuned for that. But overall, let's have a little bookmark in the Tommyknockers for right now. Um, until next time, we will come back with some more ideas as to how we would fix this this very overloaded, messy book, um, or if it even can be fixed. Do we feel it can be fixed? Because that's another thing. So uh, once more, we've got the positives, the negatives, the film, and overall, give it a look-see if you like sifting through trash. <laughs> so, um, Thank you guys so very much for hanging out. We're gonna conclude this one for now. Coming up, I cannot decide what the next one's gonna be. I think because it's toward the tail end of summer before school starts again, I do wanna get in the hard case crime of later, thinking about that one. And then, everybody, get excited. I am going to read The Green Mile in all of its serial installments. I cannot wait. I am preparing my heart for the brokenness that John Coffee 
will give me, but we're gonna do it. I'm gonna read it in the serial installments and we're gonna do an episode after each one. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so uh, until next time, let's stay tuned for some more Tommy Knocker coverage as well as the next novels on deck. Once more, please reach out to the show at underratedsk at gmail with any of your questions, comments, concerns, or if you just wanna chat more King. I would love to hear from you, especially on this book. Are you a Tommy Knocker fan? Did I miss something? Uh, give me some page numbers. I will happily open up my text and do a little bit more digging and diving because this one was interesting. I did not like it, but I also did not hate it. So I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you. If you guys haven't already, I would love you forever if you would visit Apple Podcasts and give the show a five-star rating. And if you could say something nice, that would be extra, extra special if you haven't already and if you've given us a few listens. I would also super duper adore it if you could pass this show along to a friend or two who is a King fan and uh, see if they might like to have a deeper analysis on some of their favorite underrated King titles. I would so so appreciate that. So until next time my guys, hopefully summer is treating you well. Uh, watch out for the green light. Watch out for those little gnome dudes and you know, uh, eyes to the sky pilgrims the aliens be real <laughs> i'll talk to you later bye bye